make sharp decisions, but I think in the real world, things are actually a little messier and tend not to be so binary as the tipping point framing puts out. I think more or less every carbon dioxide emission will do about the same amount of damage regardless of when it's released. And so there's just as much incentive to avoid it now as in the future. And It's not like, oh, we have to really avoid emissions when it's below two degrees, but once we've hit two degrees, then oh, we've already gone past the tipping point, so it doesn't matter. It's going to be just as important, if not more important, to avoid CO2 emissions after we've reached two degrees. Back at the mock climate game, the players had completed their fast-track set of negotiations covering several fictional rounds of talks. I found that, indeed, the tipping points sharpened their sense of failure. My name is Roz Mason. I'm the executive director and the co-founder of the CO2 Foundation. I was representing India, and I felt an incumbent upon me to, given the vulnerability of India, to really lead from the front. Now, I will say that we were able to mitigate somewhat through these these rounds, but what was interesting is because the cuts were calibrated to the actual impacts globally, um, things didn't really shift downward as much as we would hope, as quickly as we would hope. Meanwhile, these tipping points, like the loss of the Arctic sea ice, are generating extreme weather events that are $100 billion, $600 billion of damages for some of these countries annually. So sort of in line with the Paris Agreement, each country is making its own sort of pledges along the way. As they were making those, I mean, were you thinking, yeah, okay, this is going to be good? I was, and yet the next year I had a $100 billion hit from extreme weather, which is thinking about some of the impacts we've had in the United States, where in 2017, the year of Hurricane Harvey, there were $306 billion in disaster costs in the United States. We are talking big money, and so part of the the mind shift we have to get into is this is not comparing outlays to business as usual. It's comparing them to the kinds of disaster costs we can expect, as well as the fragility of the global economic system. That's very interesting. I want to explore this tipping points bit a bit more because they may be implicit in the Paris targets of 1.5 or 2 degrees, but the truth is that those are just numbers. And I don't know whether what you think bringing tipping points into the discussion achieves. The reason we're here is because those tipping points have not yet been adequately well explained. A lot of the framing is around let's limit 1.5 degrees Celsius. And, And I have to say for us Yanks, unfortunately, that makes it sound even less important. That doesn't create any sense of urgency at all. Complementing that with also a scientifically oriented conceptualization that people can understand more easily is vital to us making good decisions politically. My name is Anna Leibowitz. My field is climate policy, basically. It's actually a really interesting timing because we were playing this as the actual climate negotiations are going on in Madrid right now. This was a pretty bleak view into what might be happening there in that this was a room full of people who really, really understand the crisis that we're in and we did not succeed in avoiding catastrophe. I was representing the Marshall Islands with an economy of like $0.1 billion. Absolutely tiny, effectively negligible emissions. So, you know, very little 
individual culpability or ability to either reduce emissions in a meaningful way globally or adapt to the changes that were coming. Um, and by the end of the game, basically the Marshall Islands did not exist. They'd been entirely inundated. Most of our residents had moved to Australia or New Zealand or the United States. Um, we still didn't mitigate fast enough early enough. Like, I want to replay it. I want to talk to everybody and say, like, okay, let's get it right this time. Let's figure out the strategy that works that doesn't lead to two degrees or more of warming and fast, uninhabitable or just totally inundated regions. What were you thinking of other countries' commitments? We were hoping that they would fully fund the adaptation fund, which they did not the first time. So is there an argument about that? I mean, you're saying, come on, guys. Yeah, so I started to get much more aggressive in later rounds and go up to people and sort of get numbers. I was taking notes as about, like, okay, I've got a $20 billion commitment from the U.S., I've got a $20 million commitment from China, France, what can you do for me? Things like that. But in a different role, I'd be very curious to try to more spearhead a drastic emissions reduction program and see, see if that leads to better outcomes overall. Kirsten Nicolaisen. I was representing Oman. What I noticed was that 100% of its energy 